Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. The reformer Martin Luther once wrote, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. At some point, I think in all of our Christian lives, we will come face to face with the tension that we see in the scriptures between the fact of us being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone apart from anything that we can do, apart from obedience to the law, and the fact that there is still an expectation that our lives will not be defined by sin. That we will, in fact, walk in obedience to God's commands. We see this tension in the first part of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, it says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We are saved by grace apart from our, walk, our works. But, but then in chapter 6, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There is is an expectation that we will not live in sin and that we would be obedient to God. But we know we're not saved by our obedience to the law. We are saved, we are justified by trusting in Christ and His finished work on the cross. And our attempts to make God love us and accept us by what we do for Him and by our efforts is really just self-righteousness. And it's a road that can only lead to hell. But on the other hand, those who are in Christ, they won't live lives dominated by sin. They will, because of the radical transformation in their lives, begin to grow in holiness and obedience to God's law, which is exactly what we talked about the last few weeks. Those who are in Christ have been radically transformed because they have been united with Christ by faith. And by virtue of this union, they have died along with Christ to sin, and they have been raised with Christ to new life. And their old self in Adam has been crucified, and their new self in Christ has been raised up. And the result of that is, is their sin nature, as we talked about last week, has been rendered powerless. And they've been set free from the bondage to sin. And so this tension is real. We are saved by grace through faith, apart from our works and apart from obedience to the law, but there is still a very real biblical expectation that those who are in Christ will grow in obedience and will not live lives that are dominated by sin, which then I think raises some really important questions. And that is, what happens if you are a professing Christian, but you find that your life is dominated By sin. I mean, not just occasionally sinning or falling into sin, but it is dominated and defined by sin. I ask this question because this is a lot more common in the world than many people would care to admit. Especially given the way the church has operated in the 20th and the 21st centuries. In the last 120 years, the church has been dominated by movements that have produced many professing Christians whose lives are dominated and defined by and ruled by sin. 
movements like the church growth movement or the seeker-sensitive movement and in, in, in the movement of easy believism. The church growth movement, as we talked about before, is this paradigm or an approach to growing large churches. And the emphasis is an increase in all of the numbers, in all of the metrics. The aim is to get more numbers in church, more numbers of professions of faith, more baptisms, more money being collected. It's all about growth, and that's the most important metric And it's the idea that, in essence, that whatever works, whatever gets people in the door, whatever is practical that increases the numbers, must then, therefore, be of God and ought to be practiced. Because why? It works. Because the numerical growth is proof for them that God is at work. That's the idea. It's about the numbers. And then, right, that philosophy helps to give rise to the idea of the seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement is the philosophy that the church needs a place, excuse me, that the church needs to be a place that appeals to or attracts unregenerate people, right? The non-believer. And because of that, right, the church, what it does, everything that it does is geared towards drawing people in. And so the church, as we have seen, especially in the last 30, 40 years, has become an entertainment venue trying to keep people's attention, trying to vie for the attention of those who were not in Christ, all the while forgetting that the purpose of the church is to glorify God through worship and then preparing God's people to live on mission for Christ. And the fallout of this is the easy believism movement. The easy believism movement is is built on the idea that that the church just needs to do whatever it can do to get people to make a profession of faith. Even if they make it accidentally, I've heard. Because of that, if if they confess Jesus as their Savior, then they're saved no matter what. Even if they live like demons, even if their life doesn't change, they just invite Jesus into their heart and you're good. You've got your ticket to heaven. But there is no emphasis then on confession of sin and repentance and the centrality of the gospel and true conversion. There's no coming to terms with the holiness of God. There is no no coming to terms with the heinous nature of our sin and our helplessness to save ourselves and then our need our ongoing need for Christ to rescue us. Combine these things with the mainstream Christianity pushing back against the idea of essential doctrines in the name of unity and the church's distaste for the creeds and confessions. And what you end up is a theologically anemic church filled full of people who confess Christ, but whose lives are dominated, defined by sin. And so what happens then if you're a professing Christian, but you find yourself and your life dominated by sin? What happens when you find that your love for God has grown cold and has fallen headlong into sin? What happens when your, your love for God doesn't translate into a hatred for sin? What happens when it seems that you keep falling over and over and over and over again back into the same sinful patterns? This is an issue that so many Christians face, and just as, and it's just as important as, is what do you do about it? What do you do about it? This is a, an issue that actually many Christians face, that many professing Christians face. And just as important to that is, how do we respond to this? How do you respond when your profession of faith doesn't seem to line up with how you live? Well, well, unfortunately, there are two common biblical responses to this that are actually unhelpful. Two responses that basically end up in the opposite end of the spectrum that seem to try to give people hope, but in the end, end up leading people away from Christ. The first one is the easy 
believism and the unbiblical idea of the carnal Christian, and it's simply that they try really hard that for those who profess to, to be Christians, they try to make them feel better about their sin. And what they do is they do so by appealing to their experience at some point in the past. Their experience when they invited Jesus in their heart, they will appeal to the time when a person made an emotional profession of faith. Don't you remember, they will say, when you confessed Christ as your Savior? Well, yes, I remember that. And did you mean it at the time? When you invited Jesus in your heart? Well, yes. Well, then it doesn't matter then. It doesn't matter if your life is marked by sin. You are saved. You're heaven-bound. You're just a carnal Christian. What you need to do is just remind yourself that you have accepted Jesus into your heart, and that is proof enough that you're saved, and you're going to be fine, so don't worry about it. Just cheer up. The problem with that perspective is the Bible clearly tells us that there are people who, who think themselves to be Christians who are not. There are people who are false converts in the world. There are people who have made a profession of faith but are not in the kingdom. And it's because of that very fact that the Bible tells us that we must examine ourselves to see if we're of the faith. Remember, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, a, a passage of scripture that is a pastor that haunts me. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty, mighty works in your name? And then I will, say to you, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are people who will confess Christ who are not of the faith. And the church simply appealing to their subjective one-time experience in history of confessing Christ in spite of the fact that their life is dominated by sin is dangerous. For us to just simply want to make people feel better is dangerous. But on the other hand, the other response, on the other end of the spectrum, is just as dangerous. It's to encourage people to get serious about obedience I think this is the one that, that appealed to me a lot early on. It's to try harder and to focus on obeying the law and, and really just gritting your teeth and trying not to sin. Because, you know, we recognize that someone, you know, whose life is dominated by sin may not be in Christ. I mean, they may have made a profession, but, you know, they might be a false convert. And so what happens is people will then encourage them to prove that they're saved by working hard and producing fruit. Those people are encouraged to focus on, on working hard to provide to prove that they're Christians. But all that is, is just simply legalism. It's an attempt to earn God's favor by our efforts, which then end, which in the end again leads into self-righteousness. It leads people away from Christ. And so the most common responses to this tension that we see between being saved by faith apart from obedience to the law and the expectation that Christians will walk in obedience to the law are either to assure them that they are saved in spite of their lack of fruit in their life or to legalistically push them to go to work producing fruit in their life. That's what the majority of Christians end up doing. They end up in apathy towards sin, or they end up in legalism towards sin. But the end result is the same. Rather than helping this person draw close to Christ, who is their hope, these well-intentioned people end up driving them further away, either by apathy or by legalism. But Paul in today's text is not, not only continues to help us to see that Christians are free from bondage to sin, he offers us a biblical solution to this issue where we are saved by grace through faith apart from works and we live lives not dominated by sin but are marked by obedience to God's law. Paul helps us to see that there is a place where this tension is resolved in Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And what I want to do today is something I, I, 
a little bit different. Rather than reading the first verse in the scripture, I want to take you all the way to the last verse of this section, which is verse 14. Paul says, For sin will, not, will have no dominion over you since you were under the law. Excuse me, since you were not under the law, but under grace. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under the law, but under grace. Now, I want to begin here because this verse is one of those ones that tends to get taken out of context many times when it comes to people you know, facing the issue of remaining sin in their lives and the call to obey God's commands. Many people will attempt to, you know, to let other, many people will attempt to let other people, right, or even themselves off the hook with respect to sin in their lives by quoting the last half of this verse. I don't know if you realize that. I've heard the last half of this verse quoted many, many, many times in my Christian life. They will say things like, whoa, 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 you Pharisee, you legalist. It's not about obeying the law because we're under, under grace, not under the law. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Yeah, I know it's, I know it's not good to get drunk, right? But I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Yeah, I know that sex outside of marriage is sin, but guess what? I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And so, I believe in Jesus, that means I'm good. That's how that's rationalized. That's exactly how the men who pulled up here one day rationalized that. The truth is many people will take this half of the verse to mean that the law of God has nothing at all to do with the Christian life. That Christians, because of the grace of God, don't have to think about or be concerned about the law of God, even the moral law of God. Because as we've talked about before, the Old Testament law has been broken into basically three categories. You have the ceremonial law, the law that was given to the nation of Israel to regulate worship in the temple. This law was fulfilled in Christ because all of the Levitical laws pointed to him. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical law. And then you have the civil law, which was the, the, the laws and the regulations that regulated how the nation of Israel was to live and conduct itself as a nation. These laws right, regulated how they treated each other, how they related to foreigners, and how they lived in community. These laws were done away with when the nation of Israel ended in AD 70. Those laws were reserved for, for Israel as a nation, not the United States of America. Right. And so there's ceremony law and civil law, and that was, those were given to a certain people at a certain point in history and have no direct bearing on the Christian life. But then there is the moral law, the law that was given for all people at all time. This is the law by which God measures righteousness. It is the command not to kill or to engage in sexual immorality or to steal, to steal or to bear false witness. The law that regulates our relationships with God and our relationships with our fellow man. This is the law, as many people know, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And this is the law that's further summarized by Jesus in the greatest commandment where he says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This law, this moral law, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, is binding on everyone at all time. And this law doesn't change. The law is still relevant I don't hear any Christians walking around boasting about the fact that they are Christian serial killers. Those things are mutually exclusive, right? And, it's this, and it is this basis of, of this law that becomes the foundation of all other civil law and all other, all other societies. And many people will say, well, this law has nothing to do with the Christian life, though. And it doesn't matter if we obey this law or not. As long as we have invited Jesus into our heart, the law is irrelevant to you. 
I've heard people say, as long as you come forward and you have, you have walked down the aisle and you prayed the sinner's prayer, as long as you confess Christ at VBS when you're like six years old, the law really is irrelevant because we're not under the law, we are under grace. That's how many people see this, interpret this text. But that is not Paul's understanding. How do we know that? Well, because as we've seen, Paul's been explaining that a life dominated by sin, which is a violation of God's law, is impossible for those who are in Christ, for those who've been united with Christ. But more specifically, if you look at what Paul is saying in context, in the rest of the verse, you'll see that's not what he's saying. Notice what he says in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is why it's important for us to really study the Bible and, and study the, the words because there's a relationship here. There's a cause and effect relationship here highlighted by the word since. It tells us that, that, that the law and grace has a relationship with sin not having dominion over us. So it is true, yes, we are un, not under the law, but we are under grace, right? But the word since gives us a perspective in fact, we can actually rewrite this, this verse to say it this way. Since you were not under the law, but under grace, sin will not have dominion over you. That's the sense of what Paul is saying here. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. Because of that, sin will not have dominion over you. So there is something about this relationship to the law and grace that prevents us from having sin, having dominion over us. Now the word dominion in the Greek here implies some sort of rule or mastery. And so another way to say this is sin will have no mastery over us. It will, it will not rule over us. Since we're not under the law but under grace... Because of that, sin will not be our masters. We will not be enslaved to it, which is what Paul has been saying to us all along. Which means being under grace doesn't remove the expectation that we will obey God, which is the opposite of sinning. Obedience to God is the opposite of what it means to sin. So grace doesn't remove that expectation that we will obey God. Rather, the grace of God keeps sin from ruling over us so that we can obey the law. Our ability to obey, our ability to walk in holiness is God's grace toward us. The ability to obey and the freedom from sin's rule is a gift of God's divine grace towards us. This is something we ought to remember right here. And even as abstract as that idea might be, I think this is one that this would be the point that I would have you remember. The ability to obey God and walk in holiness. And having freedom from sin's rule in our life is a gift of God's grace. This reminds me of something I heard a long time ago as a new Christian. He said, a pastor said, God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. God in his grace, that his mercy and his love sets us free from sin's dominion and then helps us to walk in obedience toward him. Right? But pastor, we're not under the law, but grace. What does that mean? What it means is Christians, we're not under the curse of the law. Because the law itself cannot do anything but really act as a mirror to us. It can only show us where we fall short. It can only show us how sinful we are if we're left to our own devices. It can only show us that if, if it's up to us, we're condemned. The law itself doesn't have the power to bring about obedience. All it can do is show us is how we don't obey. The law doesn't have the power to make us right with God. And as such, it doesn't have the power to transform our lives and bring about the fruit of obedience and holiness in our lives. Only the grace of God can do that. 
Only the grace of God can save us by faith apart from obedience to the law, while at the same time changing us and transforming us to where we willingly reject sin's dominion over us and grow toward obedience to God's law. Okay, pastor, but how does that truth help us to walk in this tension then between being saved by grace alone Right? and the expectation that we will walk in obedience without us then falling into one of these two errors of either legalism or apathy towards sin. Well, Paul actually reveals that to us in verses 12 to 13. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now again, the word therefore is in this verse, is a conjunction that helps us to understand that what Paul is saying here is connected to what he's already built on, which helps us to see that this is connected to the first parts of, of, of chapter 6. And what did he say before this? Well, in chapter 6, he said, those who are in Christ have died to sin are now alive to God. And because of that, our sinful nature has been rendered powerless. And because of that, then, then, then we are no longer enslaved to sin. That's the point that Paul has been driving at. And he says, so therefore, in light of that, Paul says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, because you have been set free from sin, because it is not your master, because you are, are, because you are not in Adam, you were, and who you were in Adam was crucified, and because your sinful nature has been rendered powerless, because of all of that, Don't let sin rule over your mortal body. That mortal body that's subject to death, don't allow sin to have dominion over your physical body. What we need to understand is that means if you're in Christ, you now have a choice. You have a choice to say no to sin's dominion over your life. And this is important for us to see because before Christ, before you were removed from Adam in your unregenerate state, you didn't have a choice. As much as people want to believe in libertarian free will or autonomous free will, people who are not in Christ but are in Adam do not have a choice to let or not let sin rule their lives. Why? Because by nature they're enslaved to sin. They don't have the ability to set themselves free. It's just who they are. By birth, as we've talked about, everyone is in Adam. And because of that, their sin nature dominates their life. And because of that, they are enslaved to the power of sin. That's why all of mankind is in rebellion to God. That's why people are motivated continually to gratify their flesh. They don't have a choice. Paul shed some light on that for us in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Dead to God. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those who who are not in Christ but are in Adam do not have a choice to be enslaved to sin. They are by nature dead to God and alive to sin. They are enslaved to sin. It's just who they are. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, I mean, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, hold down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for their, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Mankind's sin against God, mankind sins against God and refuses to obey him because that's just who he is. He's enslaved to sin. His sin nature dominates him. His heart is hardened by sin. This is why when you talk to the atheist, you can give them all of the proofs for the existence of God, and they will not acknowledge them. You can give them the most compelling testimony, and they will still doubt you. Even now, when people hear my conversion story, and I say, when I tell them that I was an atheist, the, the one objection that, that the atheists always level at me is, you weren't really an atheist. They just want to discredit me. In spite of the fact that I talk their jargon, I know exactly who I was, I know exactly the arguments they were using, but all they can do is deny me the truth. Their hearts are hardened to sin. Their minds are clouded by sin. Their desires are corrupted by sin. Their faculties are all distorted by sin. By the way, that's the doctrine of total depravity, is that all of our faculties are, are, are twisted by sin. Sin reigns in their life. It is, it is supreme in their life. But those who are in Christ, by the grace of God, have been radically transformed. We are no longer in Adam under the curse of the covenant of works. We are in Christ in the blessing of the covenant of grace. And because of that, we have our hearts supernaturally transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And our minds have been made clear by the power of the Holy Spirit and as Paul said, we are now dead to sin and alive to God. And because of that, he's, as Paul had just said, our sin nature, though not completely dead, has lost its grip on our lives. And sin itself, which once enslaved us, no longer has dominion over us. We are not its slaves to make us obey. So we don't have to obey. Christian, because we have a choice. Again, Paul says, let not sin reign, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Which actually helps us to, to understand that sin isn't dead yet. Though it has been defeated and though it doesn't dominate our lives, it still works against us. It still tries to control us. It still tempts us. But it doesn't have to dominate us. I mean, even if we fall into sin for a time in our lives, as some Christians do, even if we keep bumping our head against the same sin over and over and over and over and over and over again, sin still doesn't own us. And because of that, by the grace of God, we have a growing power to exercise the, cho the choice to resist sin. And we have the grace of God to help us to grow in that resistance. So we have chosen not, so we have a choice not to allow sin to control what we do with our mortal bodies. We have the power to not obey sinful passions that tempt us, but rather to obey God and his word. But how, Sherman? That's the question I've been asked. How? How do we practically do this? How do we not allow sin to reign in our bodies? Because even though we are in Christ, our mortal bodies are still so very frail. Right? They're still ravaged by sin. If you say that your body's not, then you're not telling the truth. Right? Our bodies, our flesh is so weak. We are still all prone to temptation. We are still prone to seek pleasure. We are still all prone to be led astray. The problem is our mortal bodies, our sensations and emotions and our passion can be lured away by temptation and sin. So how do we as Christians exercise the choice not to let sin then reign over our mortal bodies to make us do the things we know we ought not be doing? Well, Paul explains that in verse 13. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now there is a 
whole lot here. Right? And you know I can go a little bit long on this, but I'll be brief. But there are some things we need to get clear about before we move forward. There's some terms that Paul uses here that I think that we need to get our heads wrapped around before we really try to pull this apart. Paul uses this word members, and when he uses this word, what he's, you know, what does he mean by that? He says, don't use your members for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. Well, literally, what he's talking about is the parts of your body. That's what he's talking about. Because he doesn't say, let sin reign in your body, right? He doesn't say, excuse me, he says, don't let sin reign in your body and says, don't allow that your, your, the parts of your body to be used for unrighteousness. He's talking specifically about the parts of your body that you could use or not use for sin. Like for instance, our hands. Our sins can do great evil or it can be, it can, our, our hands can be used to do good, like holding that little baby, right? Besides, if you have not done that, you need, some, you, you need a little like emotional lift, just go do that. Our hands can be used for good or evil. We can use our hands to harm people or heal them. We know that. Same with our feet. Our feet can take us to trouble or they can lead us away from trouble. Our feet can draw us toward doing the right thing or it can cause us to walk away from the right thing. Our feet can bring us into situations where we know we ought not to be or they can take us away. Same thing with our eyes. Our eyes can be used to communicate love by our look. Our eyes can be used to behold beauty. Our eyes can also be used to foster lust and covetousness. Our minds can be used as a tool for good or evil. What about our mouth? (laughs) Man, there's a lot in the Bible said about that, huh? We know that we can use, we can do good things by speaking helpful words and we can do horrible things by lying or gossiping. And given the prevalence of sexual sin, what about our reproductive organs? I mean, this is really the heart of the culture war, if you, if you understand, right? The culture wants people to, to use their reproductive organs in ways that are completely evil and against God's design and plan. Culture is wanting people to destroy their sexual organs and misuse them and misappropriate them. Our reproductive organs can be used for righteousness between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage, or it can be, they can be mis- misused in any number of ways. So what Paul is talking about then is he's talking about the different parts of your body that you can use either for good or for evil. And the word instrument that Paul uses as he relates to that, the word that he uses here actually brings with it this sense of warfare. It's not an instrument like a, like a musical instrument. It actually leans toward the idea of a sword or a weapon of war. And so what Paul is saying is not to let your body parts be used as weapons for unrighteousness, but rather the weapons of righteousness. And what this reminds us is that the struggle for our hearts and minds and souls is a spiritual war. We get caught up in the day-to-day physical, forgetting that there is a spiritual battle that rages continually all around us. It never stops. There is a war being raged for your heart and mind, and your body parts can be used as a weapon in that war for good or for evil. And the word that Paul uses here, present, actually means to offer up or even yield, or I think better, surrender. So with this, let's look at what Paul is saying here. Putting the pieces together. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And the way you do that is by not surrendering or offering up the parts of your mortal body to sin as weapons for evil, but instead surrender, and he says, yourself first, not just your parts, yourself, all of yourself. And later he says the parts of your body. Surrender yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life, those who've been radically transformed, 
and surrender your body parts to God as weapons for righteousness. Paul is saying, don't let sin have control over you like before. And the way that you keep sin from controlling you is to not give your body parts up to sin, but rather give all of yourself up to God. Don't surrender to sin. Surrender to the king. And notice that Paul doesn't say, don't let sin control you, and the way you keep sin from controlling you is trying really, really hard to obey the law. He doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say the way that you keep from sinning is and, and keeping it from controlling you is making sure that you, you know, making sure that you memorize the law and try really, really hard to obey it. Paul doesn't say that you need to identify all the ways that sin entices you and, and, and you need to make a list of the things that you need to stop doing and you need to make a list of the things that you need to avoid and you need to make a list of all the things you need to work on. Right? Again, he doesn't say that. And I point this out is because this is where so many people go when they find themselves face to face with the fact that they're not walking with God in a way that matches their confession of faith. They might confess Christ, but their lives are in bondage to sin. And their reaction oftentimes is, I just need to work harder. I just need to try harder. I just need to beat myself in the head. I need to just get my life in order. I need to get serious about doing the right things. I need to do this. I need to do that. Right? And what makes it worse is there are Christians, even ministers, who will give exactly that advice. They will say, you just need to identify your sin in your life. You just need to start disciplining yourself so you just stop doing that stuff. And you need to start doing this. I need to stop doing that. You need to do this and stop doing that. But again, where are we at again? We're just simply, again, at the doorstep of legalism. Again. Because the focus then is on the person's own efforts to try to make themselves better, to try to make themselves right with God. They try to fix themselves. But notice Paul doesn't prescribe that. He doesn't say we need to work harder or get serious and get our life right. He says we don't let sin reign in you. And the way that you do that is to surrender yourself and your body to God rather than to sin. You see, the Christian life is not simply about not sinning. Man, if there's something I could drive home that people would walk away with and live the rest of their life in this and that they would share with the rest of the world is the Christian life is not simply about not sinning. It's about surrendering to God. It's about not just turning from sin, but turning to God in faith. By the way, that's why we always call people to repent and believe the gospel. The way that you move from sin is to move towards God. There are two sides of the same coin. It's not about simply avoiding sin. It's about turning to God by faith. It's not simply about trying really hard right, to not give in to temptation. It's about living a life that is saturated and centered on who God is. The thing that we need to understand is the answer is not trying to obey the law so you don't sin. The answer is to center your mind and your heart and your life on Christ. As the hymn writer once wrote, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. And so rather than allowing temptation to cause you to use your body parts for sin, be it your mouth or your, for gossip or your hands for violence or your mind for dishonest schemes, or, rather than allowing yourself to be used as a weapon of unrighteousness, surrender yourself to God as an instrument in His hand, a weapon for good. In other words, the Christian life isn't simply about not sinning. The Christian life is about living for and serving the king. It's not about just being dead to sin. 
It's about being alive to God. It's about surrendering yourself, offering yourself up to with all that you are. Body, mind, spirit, investments, everything that you have as an instrument or a weapon in the hand of God. It's about living a life focused and centered completely on Christ and His mission that He has called all of us as believers into. That way, we don't sin the way we used to. We don't let sin dominate us. That's how we move away from sin. That is how we participate in the grace-driven effort as D.A. Carson says, not to sin. It is to be actively living for God and serving God. And not just in part of our life, but in all the areas of our lives. It's to be an instrument in His hand, whether it's with our families. If you're a father then serve God as a father. If you're a wife, serve your husband. Excuse me, serve God as a wife. Whether at work, if you're an employee, work is unto the Lord, as Paul has said. Serve God in the things that you do at work. Serve those around you. Whether it's with your children, whether it's with your community members, It is to fully surrender ourselves in all of the facets of our lives into the hand of God. But the problem is for many Americans is that the Christian life simply becomes a part-time activity. It becomes a a, a label, a part-time label that's kind of attached to our life. You know, I do all this stuff during the week, but then on Sunday, I'm I'm a Christian. And then I, I go to church, and then I, I worship, and I sing songs, and I, I get all motivated and excited, but then I go home, and then I leave it all behind. I don't read my Bible. I'm not in the Word. I'm not in prayer. I'm not engaged in the mission of Christ. I'm not worshiping daily. I'm not making disciples. I'm not even making disciples out of my own children. I'm not serving God in my daily life. My mind isn't centered and focused on Christ. And because of that, I tend to be subject and fall prey to the forces of the world around me that prey on the sin that still lingers in me, in my mortal body. I fall prey to the temptation because my mind and heart are not saturated with the things of God. They're not saturated with the gospel and the hope that I have in Christ. And I unwittingly allow myself and the members of my body to be used for evil as much as I hate for it to happen. This is the reality. The solution for us is to break, for us to break free. The solution is to not allow sin reign in our bodies and make us obey our passions, is we need to both not allow ourselves to be subject to sin and not allow our bodies to be instruments for unrighteousness, but positively turning ourselves and presenting ourselves and surrendering ourselves totally and wholly to God. Okay, pastor, that's awesome. But how do I do that? Well, let me just be clear, because I'm going to walk you through some things. And if you hear what I'm about to say to you, in the wrong context, you may think, well, what I'm about to prescribe is another form of legalism. But I'm going to tell you, this isn't legalism if you understand the orientation of our hearts. Legalism is when you decide, I need to do things to get right with God. I need to do this, and I need to do that to be right with God. I need to read my Bible, and I need to go to church, and I need to stop focusing and I need to stop cussing. Why is always stopping cussing is the first thing on, the, on a new Christian's list, right? right? I just need to do that so God will love me and accept me so I, can be, so I can be saved. Which then leads to, look at me, look at me. I'm a great Christian because I do this and I do that. That's legalism. What I'm talking about is recognizing that by faith, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And you are already in this moment, if you have believed a child of God, you have already been rescued and you have already come to faith in Christ. And because of that, then you have already made peace with God and you have already been reconciled to God as a family member. And the Holy Spirit is now actively pouring out the love of God in your heart. And you recognize that Christ's death on the cross is proof positive that God loves you and has already accepted you. And in light of that, you can now move forward seeking to live a life of obedience. Not to be saved, but because you don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. Because you don't want to live that old life anymore. You don't want to be subject to those same temptations that keep plaguing your life. And Paul is telling you that the solution is to let not sin reign over you, that you have been set free in Christ, and you have been set free from sin. Now walk free of sin. Don't allow your hands and feet and mouth and ears and your mind or any other part of yourself to be used as weapons for unrighteousness. And the way that you accomplish that is to positively present yourself, all of yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. And the way you do that is to surrender your life completely, totally to God. That you get on mission for God, that you begin living not just the Sunday life for God, but the Monday life for God, the Tuesday life for God, the life at work for God, the life with your friends out to dinner for God. And that includes doing the things the, the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace that draw you closer to Him. The first of which that I will always bring you back to is resting in the gospel. Resting in the gospel. This is one of the ones I really wish I would have learned much earlier in my life. As Paul Washer, I heard that, that sermon just resonates in my head. How many times have I fallen into sin thinking, I just need to go hide from God for a little while until I get my life back together and then I can turn to him and then come back into his presence where Paul Washer's like, you don't do that. The moment you fall into sin is you recognize that that's just a reminder that you need Christ. Turn to him now. Rest in the promise that he's made. Hold on to him and say, you promised to save me in spite of me and I have nothing but to hold on and rest in that promise. That's the place where we always must begin is rest in the gospel. Trust in the fact that you have heard the gospel and that you have repented and believed the gospel and you've been justified. You are now at peace with God and reconciled to him. And as Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of his hands. You need to rest in the truth of what God has done for you. And guess what he did for you? He did it all. All of it. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. Jesus paid it all. You simply believe it by faith. Secondly, you need to actively be hearing the voice of God in your life. And I'm not talking about you hearing voices in your head. Okay? That's a whole different issue. I'm not talking about you know, hearing audible, booming voices in your room. I'm talking about reading the Word of God. But it's not enough for a person to own a Bible. It is time to read it. It is time to read your Bible. Why? Because you can't do what God is calling you to do, what Paul is instructing you to do, unless you know who God is and what it is that God has, has empowered you to do. And you cannot know God apart from the Scriptures. I mean, yes, the Bible tells us that, that God is revealed in creation, but you can't know God the way that you need to know Him apart from the Scriptures. You cannot know Him apart from the Word. You cannot learn about God and what, he's, what his designs are for you by examining your feelings and intuitions. You cannot learn about who God is by simply interpreting dreams. You cannot learn about God by simply your experiences. The only way that you're really going to truly know who God is is to hear what God says that he is. And he does that through his scriptures. You need to read the word of God. Not to be saved. Not to prove that you're some kind of great Christian. You need to read the Word of God because you need to know God better. You need to hear His promises afresh 
over and over again. You need to learn the depths of his love for you. I'm going to tell you, you will not know how deep his love for you until you actually read the scriptures because it's deeper than you can possibly imagine. You need to learn of God's hatred of sin and you need to learn God's faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness is the song we sang this morning. I love that song. You just listen to the words there. God is a promise keeper. He is faithful to do what he's promised to do. You will not fully appreciate and understand that and have the ability to live through the difficulties of this life until you know God the way that God describes himself in the scriptures. You do this so you won't be enslaved to sin so that you can live, live for him. You need to read the word of God. And I want, I want you to hear me. I have begged this church family for 10 years to be people of the Bible. And more and more of you have been reading the Bible, but I will renew this call again and again and again. We need to be people of the book. This is how we surrender ourselves in the hands of God to be used for his righteousness is that we know him and we're hearing his voice. But here's the thing, you need to know, you need to do, to do more than just simply read it. You need to study it, right? And with all due respect, I'm not talking about topical, devotional, subject-driven Bible studies. Those are fine and they have a place and a purpose, right? And those are helpful in many different ways, right? So I'm not, so, so what I'm saying is I'm not talking about, you know, you know, the Bible study where it says how to be a, a woman of God. I think that's great. I think people, you know, I think women ought to go through those studies, right? Or how to be a better father. I mean, I'm telling you, if dads need something that's that. But I'm not talking about that kind of Bible study. I'm not even talking about the very popular end times prophecy Bible studies, right? What I'm talking about are the in-depth Bible studies where we dig into the essential things of our faith, the things that draw us into the presence of God, the things that help us to see who God is, discovering who God is in His character and His nature, that we can behold His glory, that we can be broken by His holiness. We need to do studies on the nature of who we are in light of who God is. We need to come to face to face with the fact of who we are in our old nature and who we become in Christ. We need to do studies about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and how he's saved us in spite of us. And we need to do studies in what God's calling us to do, living on mission for Christ. Lots of people have senses of those things, but there's a very clear biblical admonition for all of those things, mission especially. We need to be laser focused, at least in the early years, on God's attributes and on the essential doctrines of our faith, the things that make Christians Christians, which means we need to study books like Romans and, and Matthew and, and Acts. And we need to read those books slowly and carefully and write down the things that we see in our observations. And then, if need be, go to resources to help you understand better. Ask lots of questions. Right? Take time on a scripture that's, that, that seems to be eluding you and, and, and meditate on it and think about it. And if you happen to get into a spot where you don't know what resources to use, you know, or how to study the Bible, then just, just ask me. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of great resources. We live today in an abundance of riches of resources. There's so many different tools that you can use to study the Bible and the Scriptures. But you need to begin to become a student of the Word and, be, and then begin to live your life under the authority of the Word. That's how you surrender yourself to God. Not just hearing me preach every so often on Sunday morning, and not just reading devotionally. I, and, and I encourage devotional reading. I want you to know, I think it's helpful. Right? I read devotionally too. But you need to study the word and search it out. Because God is speaking to you through the scriptures. That's how you begin to live for him.
That's how you begin to present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. It is, it is to rest in the gospel. It is to read the word. It is to study the word. But it's also to be in prayer. I'm going to tell you right now that prayer is one of those things in my life that I, have, I personally have struggled with at times. There are times when I can just pour out my heart to God and pray, and it just comes right out of me. I could just pray and pray and pray and pray. Right? I mean, there are times people ask me to pray for them, and the words just come flowing out. But then there are times when I'm by myself in the quiet, and I struggle to even begin to say anything. I struggle to keep my mind focused on the task of prayer because all the things of the world begin to try to enter in and interrupt that. It's easy for, for me to get distracted and think to myself, well, I'm just too busy right now. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand that prayer is our lifeline to God. We must engage the Lord in prayer. We must come to him in, in our quiet time and pour our hearts out to him and ask him to do for us the things that we cannot do for ourselves. Like, Lord, change my heart. Whew. If there's a prayer that I've uttered many, many times in my Christian life, it's that one. Lord, change my heart. Right? Or how about remove from us the stain of our sins or change how we feel about our sin or help us to and empower us and strengthen us to live on mission for you. We need to pray. Again, as Martin Luther says, to be the Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Alistair Begg says, prayer is an acknowledgement that our need for God's help is not partial, but total. Jerry Bridges says, prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. We desperately need to be in prayer. And then the fourth thing we need is to be in community with the body of believers worshiping together, living life together. The reality is no one's going to grow spiritually to maturity and become the Christian that we're being called to become and to be the instrument that God wants us to be in his hand if we distance ourselves from our local assembly. You might be able to be used of God in fact, God can, as it's been said, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, right? And you can still be a Christian outside of being in a local church. I'm not saying that you can't be. But what I am saying is you will not live the life of victory. You will not live the life that God's calling to you. And you certainly will not rise above the dominance of sin in your life, disconnected from the body of Christ. It is the church where you were growing and discipled. It is the church that equips you for ministry. It is the church where you're encouraged and admonished by your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the church where you're around people who understand your struggle. I'm going to tell you, one of the things that Kim and I came to terms with many years ago is there are going to be circumstances in our lives when we talk to people who are not in our church family, that though they might, be, they might love us, and those that are in our church family, there's a distinct difference in their attitudes and their advice in how we live our lives. There are things in how we live our lives as Christians that those people just don't understand. And if we followed their advice, we would be following the world rather than Christ. You need fellowship. We need the admonition and the encouragement of our, our fellow believers. It's in the church that we're connected with others to help us grow and be strengthened. It's in the church and you're not need, it's not, and I'm not just talking about corporately here on Sundays. We need to find ways to be in each other's lives more often, whether it's having lunch with one another or having dinner with one another, getting together and doing things. We need to be together. And then finally, I'll, I'll end with this. We need to begin to serve God because God didn't save you simply so you can sit on like a bump on the log, sit around singing, Thank you, Lord, I've been saved. He saved you for a purpose. You need to find out where you can become integrated in the mission of Christ and begin actively focusing your heart and your mind and your efforts and your labors upon his kingdom and his glory. And I want you to know there's, there's many, many, many ways to do that. Everything from things like sweeping floors to cutting grass 
painting kids' classrooms, to filing, to doing the books, serving food, teaching kids, being a musicianary that travels all the way all over the country, starting an outreach program in your neighborhood, or just simply going to your friends and your family sharing the hope of Christ. There's many ways to serve. And right now, we're calling this church family to grow. And we're calling for new leaders to rise up because the community itself needs you to rise up. But it's also how you surrender to the hand of God is to say, yes, Lord, and be available for the service that he's calling you to. And so it's how you surrender to God and not surrender to sin. Resting in the gospel, being in the word of God, being close to him in prayer, being close to your church family, and then being involved in the mission of Christ, serving in some capacity. That's how you surrender yourself into the hand of God to be used as an instrument of righteousness for his glory. And guess what? Ultimately, for your good. Brothers and sisters, walk out of here today with the knowledge that if you're in Christ, you have been set free from the bondage to sin. Now walk free of that sin. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.